Uh, well, we all make decisions. There are those who are here entering college for the first time. I have a granddaughter who's just uh, reported to college for her freshman year. So, you know, there, there's a big adjustment there. There really is. And for some of you here, some are returning to college. Some are family members, and you have a child who's... Uh, a young adult now and who's going to college and that's a change. Others have children going back to school, maybe they're new schools or at least different teachers. And there's an adjustment. Some have new jobs. I know several who have new jobs who are here. And then there are those of us <laughs> who uh, seem to stay busier than we used to be now that we're retired. <laughs> because we've discovered that there is no retirement from service in the Lord's, in the Lord's service. And we're glad. You know, if you missed Zach this morning, you missed a wonderful presentation. Talk about a wonderful biblical theology of service in the church and elsewhere. Um, I hope it was taped. If it was, yes, it is taped. If you missed it, get it. I want to get a copy. We're here this morning with different things on our minds. We always come with things on our mind. And some may have questions about what to do, big decisions you're making, or whether to persevere in decisions you've made but that are getting to a rough patch and persevering with them. <clears throat> well, you see, we need to have a reference point for our life decisions. We all do. We have to have what some have called a moral compass. Well, what is it that gives you meaning to your life in the midst of the whirlwinds of change and uncertainty? Boy, are things changing fast. Do you have an anchor? Do you have a moral compass that you can trust when the ship is buffeted about that you know that compass points true? Some years ago, this will date me, <laughs> because it just came out when I was in college, <laughs> there was a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Uh, Jennifer Stucker will probably know about this, Jonathan may, but it was all the required reading. It was a bestseller list, and it was on the required reading for schools of psychology and philosophy and so on. College for a long time. Why? Well, it was about three um, patients at the state mental hospital at Ypsilanti, Michigan. And the thing about these three people is that each of them believed, was convinced that he was Jesus Christ. Okay? And someone, they, I don't think they'd be able to get away with doing this today, Jennifer could tell me, but, um, you know, they, they had an experiment. People said, okay, we're going we're gonna to try something. We're going to put them all in the same room at the same time and see what happens. Whoa, is that the best for the patient? I don't know, but they did that, and they were very keenly interested in what happened. And the whole book is about what unfolded out of that. Dramatic. One person changed their mind. One was more convinced than ever. One turned into somebody else. Well, you know, <laughs> they're all schizophrenic. They're all schizophrenic. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, very few 
uh, founders, but there have been some, of small and medium-sized cults who have claimed to be God. But interestingly, none of the founders of the world's major religions, Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, Confucius, Kung Fu Tzu, uh, the Jain founder, Mahavira, the pathfinder, um, Muhammad, I mean, you, you name them, Lao Tzu, Taoism, none of these founders originally claimed to be God. With There's one exception, one world religion. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He did. And then you have to do something with that, as C.S. Lewis has written. Either he is crazy as the person who thinks he's a poached egg, those were C.S. Lewis's words. Or, or he's a deceiver, diabolical, in which case his life should show that. He's a con artist. Or else there's only one third possibility. is who he said he was. You see, that has everything to do with why we're here this morning. Everything to do with the decisional compass we as followers of that Jesus Christ do and think and choose. The text that we're going to look at, which is in your, your bulletin, but I hope you brought your Bible. We do refer to other verses during our message. Um, but the two verses we'll look at this morning from Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verses 7 and 8. Teach us the gospel of Jesus Christ is the unchanging foundation of the believing community. And it does so, it establishes it through the foundation and the legacy that God has given us. The foundation and the legacy of our faith. I'd like us now to look at God's word. If he has not spoken, I really have nothing worthwhile to say. But he has spoken. He's there and he's not silent. And these two verses from his word, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's look to him. Heavenly Father. Thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, an anchor for our soul, as the writer of Hebrews has previously stated. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that by your spirit this day, we might come to have a keener and deeper insight into who he is and what that means in our lives. Triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receive our worship, transform our thoughts, and mold our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the unchanging foundation of the believing community. Now, the title of this message today, remember your leaders. That could mean a number of things. Remember them in prayer, and that would be good. Elsewhere, we're told to do that. That's not the primary thrust 
of these verses. Remember your leaders, meaning those who are presently uh, before you, your elders and deacons, those you've heard from today, and others, that you're supposed to remember them. And that's true, and we'll talk about that next week, God willing, a few verses later in this chapter that is focused on. But that's really not the focus of these words in the context, immediate context, of the book of Hebrews. In verse 7 of chapter 13, when the writer of Hebrews says, remember your leaders. He's especially talking about those who have established and committed to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's those who spoke the word of God to them. And what's the word all about? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. It's unchanging. Let's look at that for a moment. First, the foundation. God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ is the trustworthy foundation of our faith. When, when the text here says the word of God, there are different terms that are used in the New Testament. One's the proclamation, kerox. It's the heralding of it. That's not the word here. It's an important word, but it's not the one here. There's to speak, lale, that is to talk it out. And that's often used. Jesus did that a lot, but that's not the word that is used here. There are other terms, prophetuo, to prophesy. It's not the word that's used here. What we have when it says the word of God is that powerful word, logos. John in his gospel begins the gospel by saying, in the beginning was the logos, the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Word. The Word of God. Embodied in the person, ultimately the person of his son, about whom all the rest of scripture is really written and to whom it points. And he is the word of God. Now the point is that it's all about Jesus. Did you notice the lyrics of what we sang today? Ultimately it's all about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. Verse 8 then, Jesus Christ the word is is not there. <laughs> it depends on what the meaning of the word is is. Well, no, there is no is here. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. What's that got to do with what he's just said? Everything. You see, what those leaders who initially established the foundation of the church, and that was the apostolic band and those surrounding them, through whom God gave us our New Testament, the scriptures of the Bible that tell us of the coming of Jesus Christ and what it means, what he's done. And it doesn't change. You see, the apostolic preaching of the cross has been faithfully passed down to us. By whom? Well, initially it was... 
It was handed down, the tradition, the paradises, by your leaders. Now, the word leaders is interesting here. There are different words for leaders. This particular word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word is used a number of times in that translation. And it's always of a powerful political or military leader who coerces his way on other people. It's never used the way Jesus uses it. In the New Testament, it's used outside the community of God's people the same way. We get our English word hegemony. That is to say that an overbearing influence. You know, you're being nudged from both sides. Powerful nations have hegemony over their weaker neighbors. Hegemony. But when it's used by Jesus, when it's used by the apostles in the context of the community of faith, it's used entirely differently. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, Jesus says this. Beginning at uh, verse 24, says a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules. It's this word. Give a new meaning by its usage by our Lord. The one who rules like the one who serves. Servant leadership. Robert Greenleaf created quite a stir about uh, 15 years ago or so when he came out with a whole leadership management uh, philosophy that was based on servant leadership. And it was attacked by many of those in Wall Street. Oh, no, I can't work it that way. Uh, by the way, I think you can, but that's another matter. We could talk about that another time if you want. Uh, the point is, Jesus talks about servant leadership. And when he uses the word that way, that's how he means it. That's the word that's used here. Those who have sway over our lives. But not just those now. It's talking especially about those who molded the way we think and act at the very beginning as they received and committed to us. And that whole heritage about who Jesus is and what he did. In other words, the gospel, the New Testament especially. It's interesting that the word spoke the word now, spoke the logos, the word of God. The word speak is a term simply, lale, to, to talk it out. Um, one um, commentator has said that it's really like, like um, storying it to young listeners. And I love that expression. Jesus did that. He storied the gospel to his listeners, young and old, because the oldest of us are still children to God. And they storied the once-for-all message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's that storying that Paul and Barnabas, as they come back through Pergamum, uh, in Acts 14, verse 24, it says, they preached the word in Perga. Preached the word, logos. To preach the word 
to speak it, to proclaim it, is to carry on and pass the baton of what Jesus has come and has done for us. We can contrast the leadership styles of typical military leaders and corporate CEOs with that characterized by Jesus. What kind of a leader are you? Jesus says, the one who, who rules over you should be among you as one who serves. And the word for serve is, Chris just talked to us as a deacon today. It's the same word we get deacon from. One who deacons. One who is interested in the needs of the body and reaching out in that way. What kind of leader are you? What kind of leaders has Jesus raised up for us here at Christ Community? Friends, may we first look for faithful men who have shepherd's heart that mirrors Jesus' own. A person who's a bank executive doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be a good leader in the body of Jesus Christ, the flock of God. See, they're a very different set of skills, aren't there? From the boardroom to the diaconate. Let's be grateful for the ones God gives us and follow their examples. And remember that the gospel itself doesn't change. Verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul said to the Galatians in the very first chapter, in verse 8, he, he says, if anyone, I or an angel from heaven, whoa, the Apostle Paul says, if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that you have heard preached, let him be eternally condemned. The word is stronger than that, but I'll, I'll settle for eternally condemned. And then you think, well, that was a slip. No, it wasn't. Paul says, I'll say it again, and he repeats it. You see, it's very important. Some things just don't change. They're not meant to. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul can write about Christ in you, the hope of glory. It remains the hallmark of the community of faith throughout the ages until Christ returns. That, friends, is the foundation. Remember your leaders. The apostolic faith passed down to us. And then there's the legacy leads us to. God calls us to call to mind the legacy of those who have passed down the faith to us. Verse 7, remember. That's a present imperative. It's a voice of command. Keep on doing it. You don't let up. And then he says, consider similarly. But that means looking up to. Looking up to what? The outcome. The example of their faithfulness. Listen, to the very end. Some of the reformers talked about the perseverance of the saints. I might say the preservation of the saints puts the focus more on God, but it's two sides of the same coin, persevering to the very end. The example in two chapters before this, in Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame, of faith, uh, um, and we looked at some verses uh, from Hebrews this morning. They were wonderful ones in the, in the class, if you missed it. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, um, God says through the writer of, of this epistle to the Hebrews, he says, Abel, being dead, yet speaks. The murdered son of Adam and Eve. 
being dead, yet speaks. We're to remember that legacy. You see, the gospel affects all of life. Consider, verse 7, the writer says, consider their way of life. That refers to the conduct as lived out such that it actually makes a difference in the way we behave and how we live. In fact, the way of life. You realize that Jesus, of course, had said, I am the way, both the truth and the life. I think the, the, the grammar there really points to it being the focus on I'm the way, both the truth and the life. He, Jesus, is the way. The opening chapters of the book of Acts, the term for Christianity, Christianity is a word hadn't yet been coined. You know how they referred to, to the community of following Jesus? They referred to it as the way. The way. Consider their way of life. Early in the church, there were heretics who wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They were uh, disciples of the, of the Greek philosophers, and they wanted to take Jesus' teachings and say, oh, well, this world, this world is just a mirage. It was kind of a, a part of the uh, uh, same uh, confluence of thinking that spread across um, the uh, Aryan races through Iran, which comes from Aryan. Uh, all the way into uh, northern India and the, had its early Hinduism had its roots in, in that, where, where the idea is that this world is not real, you see. It's just Maya, it's an illusion. It's, it's got to be evil, and, and we need to rise above it and escape from uh, the hard reality of facing life and trouble and suffering. So. The Gnostics drank that up, and then they said, oh, but we'll be Christians. But you see, Jesus is not really a man. He only appeared to be. And, and we really, this, this life doesn't matter. How you live doesn't matter because it's an illusion. It's thinking rightly. It's having secret knowledge. Oh, contrast that with what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Consider their way of life. How, how you live, how I live does matter. Does it reflect Christ in you, the hope of glory? And then on the other hand, there are modern pragmatists who will simply say it doesn't matter at all what you believe as long as uh, we just get along. If it works for you, whatever your moral compass is doesn't matter. If it works for you, that means it's right for you. If it works for you, in what context? At the moment, gives you pleasure, and for the second, and pain to you and to others later? There's no compass there, not one that's trustworthy and true. How different, you see, is the gospel that engages both our minds with transcendent truths that are absolute, they're reliable, unchanging, and affects our behaviors with implications for the way we live out our lives. So one of the earliest confessions found in the New Testament of Christians was simply four words in the original writing. Jesus Christos Hokorios. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just Lord, the Lord. Only unchallenged and unrivaled Lord. Jesus 
You will call his name Jesus. Jehovah saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ, meaning Mashiach in Hebrew, the, the anointed one, the one upon whom God has placed his spirit in order that he may serve as the substitute and representative for God's people, living that righteous life we owed God and none of us since the fall have ever offered to God, the infinitely holy and righteous God. All our righteousness, the scripture says, is his filthy rags. We come empty-handed to him. We don't say we earned any of our salvation. We come instead and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Jesus Christ, the Lord. It's not that Caesar was Lord. No, no. Pontifex Maximus. They would go to their deaths rather than acknowledge any Lord, ultimate Lord. Than Jesus Christ. His lordship meant that he had a claim over our lives, how we live, what we believe, our choices, our heart's desires. Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, that's the gospel in a nutshell, that we come to Christ and say, I don't deserve you to be my Savior. I don't need you simply to help me a little bit and I'll do the rest. I need one who has done it for me, in whom I rest from my own works and cling to and claim his and then want him to live out in my life. It's the gospel. And we have it because we got it, says the writer of Hebrews, faithfully. It was passed down to us reliably. Years ago, when I was in college, only it wasn't regular college, it was U.S. Naval Academy, and I'd, I'd come there. I hadn't been able to swim a lick from Colorado. We used water to grow things. I finally learned how to swim some, and I still hadn't become much of a swimmer, uh, but at least I could uh, stay on top of the water, you know, and uh, I'd eventually learned to swim fairly decently, but um, not competitively, I've never been that good, but, but a lot better than when I showed up. But in the middle of those four years, right at the midpoint, they took a bunch of us new second class, that's juniors, rising juniors, to go to different parts of the country to see what it was like to do flight training down in Jacksonville and Pensacola, to uh, uh, see what they, now we'd already been surface uh, Navy the first summer, but now, now we'd go to New London as well, and that was where among other things, they had submarine training, Groton, Connecticut, and so on, go on board the nuclear subs. But in New London, they had, at that time, they've since, I believe, closed it. They had a very tall structure. It was like 150 feet tall. It was really tall. It was a tower. It was a diving tower. And uh, I got to do what everybody else got to do. You didn't have a choice. You suited up, you swim, you know, swim togs, and... Uh, and, uh, and they took us into an elevator, and we went up the outside of this, this tower, and then we went inside, and they had a different elevator. <clears throat> and you stepped in, and you, you know, it was up to your knees as you sat down around the, the edges of this thing. It had seats, and it was, the door was opened, you see, down below you. And uh, it started going down with several of us, and, uh, and, and an instructor, thankfully for the instructor, and he... He was telling us on the way down, he says, if you want to live, when you come up, you listen up. He had my attention. 
some of the guys, oh, I can swim, you know, they may not have paid attention. I paid attention to this guy. And as he's talking, you know, we're going down, 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 and the pressure of the water is getting greater. And what's happening to the airspace around us is getting smaller and smaller. I'm getting a little concerned, you know. I feel like somebody trapped in a car that's gone down and woo. And uh, is it, am I going to run out of place to breathe? And, and he's saying, listen, when you step out, you're going to have to step out. And you have to hold your hands at your side. Don't let them go. Hold on to your pants. Step out. Put your head up. Arch your back a little bit. So you're going up. And as you go up, listen. I thought he was going to say, I know, I know. I'm really good at holding my breath. I can hold my breath for three minutes. That'll get me to the surface. He said, don't hold your breath. What? That was my instinct. I could do that rather well, frankly. Had to when you couldn't swim well. And, and uh, you know, I wanted to step out and just, he said, don't hold your breath. As you go up, the air in your lungs is under pressure. It's compressed. As you go up, it will expand. If you hold your breath, your lungs will explode and you will float on the surface dying in blood. That, that doesn't sound very nice. I don't want to do that. I had a choice now. I had a choice. He says, as you step out, you yell as, strong, as loudly as you can with the full force of your lungs. Expel that air going, ho, ho, ho. I thought, that's not funny. But he said, go. And there were people, uh, instructors in scuba gear. They have air, you know. And they stationed at different levels as we were going up. We only had gone down 75 feet or something, about halfway. Plenty enough. Plenty enough. Well, I had a choice. I could follow my own instincts and have the consequences. Or I could trust that what the instructor was telling me was true. He knew what he was talking about, and he really did care about me. I had to make a choice. It was a life or death choice that day. I'm here. You know, I chose to step out. And I didn't laugh, but I yelled, ho, 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 all the way to the surface. But in the middle, you know, I thought I was running out of air. And so I kind of choked for a minute. And sure enough, one of the instructors grabbed me and shook me until I managed to ho, ho, ho some more. And he let me go. And on up I went. And as I breached the surface, I was yelling, ho, ho, ho. And I still had air in my lungs. Contrary to any sensation I'd ever had before in my young 20-year-old life. Friends, the writer of Hebrews says it's a matter of life and death. What you've been given by those who are entrusted with it, they knew what they were talking about. It's true. You've received it in a trustworthy way, and they care about you. And you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Remember it, he says. Consider their way of life. 